I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. Welcome back to Battleground Podcast. We are at part two with Secret Service agent, retired Secret Service Secret Service agent Jeff James. Um, we talked a lot about Jeff's background and his history and why he wanted to join the United States Secret Service. Um, and unexpectedly so, but I think appropriately, we also talked about child trafficking and what you can do to insulate your children and your family from this threat that, frankly most Americans turn a blind eye to. It's a modern day slave trade in in this country every day, only it's not public. It happens online behind the scenes, but it's a crisis in this country that we can't afford to ignore anymore. Uh, So this is part two. So uh, today uh, I want to talk about what Jeff's experience was like protecting presidents of the United States. Jeff, welcome back to part two of Battleground. Thanks for coming back. Oh, no, I'm honored to be here again. Thank you. <laughs> so you have you've done just so much with your career. You're a Pittsburgh guy like me, Western Pennsylvania. Um, but I want to talk about how you get selected for and correct me if I'm, I'm if I'm not saying this properly, but the presidential protection detail on the Secret Service, because that's that's not an assignment that everybody gets. Right. Yeah, correct. Um, you know, the, the actual number of people who are assigned to the president's details classified, but, but it is something that not every secret service agent gets to do. And it's very frankly something I'm, I'm proud I was able to achieve. And it's, um, you know, it, it happens for you in, in a couple of ways. You know, they look, they look at your assignments prior. Um, they look at, uh, you know, recommendations from your bosses. They look at your shooting scores. They look at your PT scores. So there's, you know, hmm. oh, several components that go into it. Um, and, and part of it is very frankly, you know, you're a lot of your bosses will have been there and they'll know whether or not you're going to be a good fit. Um, and, and look, there are other opportunities. It's not like it's that or nothing. There's the vice president's detail. There's former president detail, presidential details. There is now it, it wasn't there when I was in, but now there's an investigative track because the secret service has gotten very highly involved in cybersecurity and cyber threats. So there's a track for that now for, because we do have agents who, in spite of joining the secret service, decide that hmm. the protection side isn't for them because it's, it, it can be a grind. It's a lot of travel, a lot of time away from home and, and things like that. So, um, so there are other opportunities, but, but it is something that I was, I feel truly blessed and fortunate to have done. So how do you let the secret service know that, that you want to be on the presidential protection detail. You know, if, if you're in the military and you're, you know, a young infantry officer and you want to go to a ranger battalion, you have to, you know, go through ranger indoctrination program or ranger orientation program rope or whatever, and you try out. 
Um, and same thing for United States Special Forces. You got to go to the to the Q course and do Starland navigation and everything else, and you try out. And sometimes people that make it through all the training requirements and check all the right blocks, they don't pass the board at the end for whatever reason. Maybe their psych profile doesn't add up. Um, is it? Do, do, are you just are you just selected for it? Do they say, "Hey, we like your track. You have promise. I, I want you to try out for this," or is it something that you deliberately do? Um. They're not going to, they're not going to force anybody to do it because it is a grind. It is something that, you know, you're, you're going to raise your hand. When I was in, you, you actually had throughout your career where you would go into your uh, profile and you would put your top three choices of your next assignment. Mm. Um, so when I first went to DC, I was uh, an intelligence specialist and I knew from there that, that I wanted to go to the president's detail. So I went in and put in my preferences that that was, that was my first choice. Um, from there, you know, you put like, okay, it's your time's getting close. You need to leave DC. You would put in the field offices that you would like to get to, you know, whether if you're a West coast guy, you might pick San Francisco, LA, you know, um, Seattle, whatever. Um, or you, you know, you just put that in there. Now, when you're selected to for reassignment to the president's detail, um, you do go through another month of training that is like that pre preschool to, to going to the detail. Um, you know, it, it is possible to wash out of that, but you know, everybody pretty much knows that if, if you've raised your hand and said, I want to do this, you, you better be ready to go. Uh, so that preschool is, um, it was a lot of fun, great spirit of competition. Uh, <laughs> you know, everybody wanted to out shoot and outrun everybody else. And, uh, and it, and it was a lot of fun. In fact, as I think back on my career, it was one of the most fun months of, of my career that being in that training with all those, uh, that, you know, group of the 24 of us that were going to be next to go to the president's detail. Um, but it, it is possible to wash out of that, but it, if, you know, everybody's pretty good by that point. Um, if you wash out, it's going to be because of an attitude problem more so than hmm. being able to shoot or run and jump and stuff like that. Is it, I mean, was the sense, was there a sense of camaraderie? Like each of you, 20 or so people that were in that training, Jeff, was there a sense that, you know, a sense of esprit de corps that you were the best and you were there together to protect the leader of the free world? I got to believe that that's surreal. Yeah. Not, and not just in that class of 24, but once you join, join the, the detail, there is that that's exactly what it is. You know, where you are, you know, we, I always thought that it was, I wish it was like the Penguins, right? You go into a series, you can lose three and still win the series. <laughs> you know, we yeah. we knew we had to win every day. Um, hmm. the The best case scenario on a mistake is somebody gets hurt. A worst case is somebody dies, and the very worst is the president dies or whoever we're protecting: president, vice president, um, you know, the Queen of England, the Pope, whoever we're protecting. That's the very worst case scenario. So. Along with the the pressure and and you know my wife hears me say this and I think she thinks I'm crazy. If you ask me what I miss the most, that's it—the tension and the pressure and the, and the real sense of urgency that came with everything we did—is is what I miss the most. Um, but I do miss that camaraderie. You know, there were times I was gone for months at a time, at especially during like campaign seasons where you're just jumping from visit to visit and. And many times you're doing it with that same small group of people and that's who you have dinner with. And that's who you, 
you know, decompress with and that's who you go to the gym with. And, and it really does build that camaraderie. That's who we sit and talk about how much we miss our families with. You know, we, you know, it, it, it creates that, that closeness, much like I'm sure, you know, you and your men were. And, um, but yeah, that, that shared mission is, is, and was so important to me and, and continues to be, I know, important to the men and women who are still there. So what was it like when you make it through that course? I mean, is there like, is there in processing? Do you go to the white house immediately and meet the president? I mean, is, is there a secret service agent in charge? I'm sure there is, or the presidential protection detail, like somebody that liaises with the president's chief of staff. Like, give me a sense of, if you can, to, to the extent that you can talk about it publicly, what's, what's the command structure like when you get around the boss, the yeah, big so, boss? Yeah. So there, there is an agent in charge of the president's detail. Um, then there are, there's, um, you know, also deputies, and then it comes down to assistant special agents in charge, and and uh, then there then there's one uh, supervisor who's in charge of each shift. So there were four shifts on the president's detail. Uh, one would work day shift, one would work afternoons, and one would work midnights. And then the fourth shift. Let me step back. You would work two weeks of each of those shifts. You would rotate through every two weeks. And when you were on the fourth shift, it was all training. You spent your two weeks going out to um, to our training center in Bellsville, Maryland, that I mentioned in the last last episode. Hmm. And you would just, you know, spend two weeks of, you know, you practice getting attacked. You um, we shoot, you know, we we really put a high premium on all this stuff. The shooting, um, we practice getting attacked as, as the president was shaking hands. We practice getting attacked in motorcades. Uh, there were rooms in the gym that the floor and walls and everything were all covered with mats. You know, we just go in and we'd fight all day, you know, practice like a, a bad guy's trying to take my gun. How do I, how do I, uh, you know, retain my weapon? You know, we got, there's two guys trying to get me into a corner. How do I disable one of them quickly? So I'm only fighting one guy and, or, or just able to get away. That's the bigger thing. Let's create that opportunity to get out of there. Um, so th- that was how it worked with one in charge of each shift. Um, and how it went when you f- were first assigned to the presidency, you really don't, you really never get a, a chance where you're introduced to the president. Um, but one of the things that also falls under the umbrella of the president's detail is the security for people like the chief of staff and the national security advisor. So like I was assigned when I first got to the president's detail, I was assigned for about nine months, uh, to protect Condoleezza Rice when she was the national security advisor. And then um, you'll go from there, you'll come back and you'll go to another satellite. So maybe you'll go with the first lady or maybe you'll go to our air security branch, <clears throat> excuse me, which is you're the person that works with the military and the FAA to set up all the secure airspace where the president goes. And then after that, that's when you come back and you're pretty much spending all your time around the president. You're a little bit more seasoned. You've gotten to know the White House a little bit. You've got to know how things how things go there. And very frankly, they're looking to make sure you're going to be a good fit in that assignment. And then that's when you come back and start doing, doing stuff right around the president. Man, I have so many questions based on what you just told me. And I mean, I, I don't even know where to begin, but you know, you, know, you learn a, a lot about people based on how they treat people who can do nothing for them, so to speak. Um, there's obviously a power dynamic at play. You're someone that, that, is serving, you're willing to take a bullet for the person that you're protecting. Um, 
ha, ha, like what kind of person? I, I think I probably already know the answer, but what kind of person? And you, you know, you don't have to disclose personal stuff, but what was it like working for Condoleezza Rice? Oh, or working with her, I should say. You, oh, you want to talk about just a fabulous person, uh, someone who I wished would have run for president. Um, she, uh, she was just so kind. In fact, I'll tell you this story. And I actually got to introduce her. So the Secret Service picks a couple people every year to go to the uh, military senior service schools, like the War College, the Eisenhower School. And a couple of years ago, uh, I was selected for the Eisenhower School. Um, so they give you 10 months off to go get a master's degree. And while I'm there, she came uh, to give a speech to, uh, to the group. And um, the, the president, the commandant, I'm sorry, the, the general uh, in charge of the school at the time found out that I had that, you know, somewhat of a relationship with her, not, not that we kept in touch, but, and said, hey, would you like to introduce her? And I said, oh, I'd love to. And I, when I introduced her, I told this story. So when I was a new person on her detail, uh, she lived in the Watergate. So she came out the first morning I was working and we get into the elevator and she says, oh, you're a new face. And I said, yes, ma'am. You know, my name's Jeff James. It's a pleasure to meet you. And we did the pleasantries. And she said, um, so where are you from? And I said, oh, I'm, I'm from Pittsburgh. And the background is she is a huge Cleveland Brown fan. And <laughs> so I'm, I'm standing in the front of the elevator where the doors would open right in front of me and she's behind me. And she said, oh, well, I guess if you're from Pittsburgh, you're a Steeler fan. And I said, yes, ma'am, I believe black and gold. And from behind me, in, in a stage whisper that she was certain I would hear, I hear, oh, I hate the Steelers. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so I assured her at that point that I would protect her anyway. So, uh, <laughs> so it was a laugh we had there. And I, I told that story when I introduced her and she probably came out and said, well, listen, I still hate the Steelers, but I, you know, I can still laugh about that story. But uh, just, just a great lady, you know, you'd, You'd stand outside her door some nights and hear her in there playing piano. She was a classical pianist, um, super intelligent, great diplomat. And just, uh, yeah, someone, one of those people you meet, like, um, like Colin Powell, who you say, you know, boy, I wish this person would, would throw their hat in the ring. But you understand, and we talked about it last time too, that you understand why people don't with the, with the nature of politics these days. So, mm-hmm. I mean, th- it's those moments that you talk about standing outside Condoleezza Rice's door and listening to her play piano. It's those quiet moments that I think are the most compelling. Uh, it's, it's the stories that people really want to hear. What, what are these, what are these people like in private? I mean, and, and what was it like to protect them? And do you have any other, do you have any other anecdotes like that with, with Condoleezza Rice? Cause I'm sure you spent a lot of time with her. I mean, you're, I don't know if you're, you're actually physically driving in cars with her or flying around with her, but I got to believe that even when she goes overseas, you're still, if, if secret service is still with her. Oh yeah. We, so we took her everywhere. And in, in fact, um, we took her on one trip to, to Russia and we're in Moscow and, um, we go into the Kremlin and she's in there having meetings with, with her counterpart, and as I'm standing there, a KGB agent comes up to me and he kind of nudges me with his elbow. And he says in, in broken English, but clearly sending a message to me, um, you know, we don't, we don't even let Russians carry guns in the Kremlin. 
And he just kind of turns and walks away. He's sending me the message that, you know, what, what a big deal this was. I don't, I don't know. There was much resentment in his voice, a little, maybe a little bit, but, but what it made me realize was really just the idea, like how, how big of a moment I was in right there. And, and, you know, we, we tried not to get overwhelmed by moments cause we couldn't, cause we're there to do a job. But, but at that second, you know, thinking something like that, like, like literally here I am standing in, in the Kremlin, um, you know, just like, and, and I'll, I'll be honest with you, Sean, I got that way. You know, I always tell people the joke, I'm a dumb kid from, you know, from the east side of Pittsburgh and, and they let me walk into the White House every day. It was, it's still, a, it, it never got old. It was a thrill every time. And, um, and, you know, to be able to walk, we, you know, we do midnight shifts and, you know, it's quiet. And uh, I would... I would take those moments that I didn't have something because we, we would hold our posts and then you'd have downtime and you'd do it. You'd use that downtime to get your paperwork done, your travel vouchers, or, or if you uh, had to do paperwork after you didn't advance, you'd get that done. But then there'd be times where, you know, the bosses would say, all right, let's go walk the emergency evacuation routes, you know, because that training was a constant thing we do. But then if I had that half hour where I wasn't doing anything, I would just, you know, go walk around in, in the ground floor of the white house uh, just off the East wing, there's a library and in the library on the, on the wall in a, in a, a plastic case is the sword that George Washington carried during the revolutionary war. And I would go down there and I'd, it, it'd be four in the morning and I would just stand and look at it and think, you know, Holy wow. cow, that's, that's George Washington's sword. And I'd just kind of take in for a moment, allow myself to be for that one moment overwhelmed by where I was. Cause you know, Tony Snow and I'm going to paraphrase, had a quotation, uh, you know, and sadly he died, he died young. He was a great guy that, you know, don't ever forget that millions of people walk in front of the white house every day and take pictures and dream about coming inside. And we get to do that and never forget, you know, what a big, big deal it is. And I just, I'm, I'm glad I never forgot what a big deal it was. I, I think, you know, even though, you know, the secret service are consummate professionals and you're there to do a job, one that is of monumental importance and you're willing to give your life for the person that you're protecting. I mean, I think it's important to take some time and have those moments. Otherwise those moments tend to pass you by. I, I, I can't believe it's hard for me to imagine what it would be like, you know, showing up at the white house, scanning my badge, walking through the halls, like you, I don't think that would ever get old to me. I don't think I would it would ever just get become a part of the routine, you know? Yeah, I, I would hope it wouldn't for anybody because your time there is short. Whether, the only people who stay in place at the White House are um, the folks from the National Park Service because they service the grounds. Um, the White House staff, as far as like um, the the folks who who clean, who who do the maintenance, uh, there's a there's a couple at one point there was three full-time florists like they're not really really political so they don't change um and we didn't change either based on who was president but your your time there was five years and if you came back as a supervisor you know you had a chance to spend a couple more years there but um you knew it was a, a short-lived time and if you work for an administration the most you got is eight years right so i think everybody has that idea that you know you're not long for these assignments so so make sure you appreciate it. Today, I want to talk about something that's been on the minds of many Americans lately. 
energy independent. With rising energy prices and geopolitical tensions, it's more important than ever for our country to be self-sufficient when it comes to our energy needs. And that's where Deepwell Services comes in. They're a company that's not only dedicated to delivering top-notch services to the oil and gas industry, but they're also committed to the goal of American energy independence. With their cutting-edge technology and expert team of professionals, they're helping to unlock new sources of domestic energy and reduce our dependence on foreign oil. But that's not all. Deepwell Services is also a great American company that's hiring like crazy right now. And they're not just looking for anyone. They're seeking out talented and hardworking individuals who want to join their team and make a difference. And with competitive salaries and benefits, it's a great opportunity to not only work for a patriotic company, but also build a rewarding career in the energy sector. So if you're looking for a job with purpose and meaning, or if you're simply passionate about American energy independence, then you should definitely check out Deepwell Services. Visit their website at deepwellservices.com to learn more about their company and career opportunities. So how do you train? You said training was always part of what you did, but I, you know, having been through a fair amount of of tactical training myself, how do you train when you don't have the person you're protecting there? So when you talk about, hey, we're going to we're going to run a drill uh, where the president of the United States gets attacked while he was shaking hands. And by the way, just as a quick side story, I mean, there were times like when I was running for Senate or or even for the House before that, where there's such a frenzy of activity around you um, or then you add another layer to that when, say, President Trump came to town and there are 30, 30,000 people at these rallies. Yeah. I, how I mean, it could anybody that I had no protection when I was out there as just a candidate, but anybody it feels like at any time could walk up to you and attack you and you know candidate you don't have eyes in the back of your head that was always something that was on my mind in this super polarizing political environment that we live in you know people people are crazy sometimes and so how do you how do you train for something though when you when a half a second can be the difference between life and death but you're not training with the principle so to speak well we would always get somebody to play the president usually one of our instructors would would Mm. play the president in that in that scenario. Um, but one of the things we did too was we would bring the president's staff out with us. So we would bring the white house doctors out. Um, you know, sometimes some of his high level staff would come out because one of the things they needed to understand was, Hey, if something happens, we, we are going like, we are throwing the president in the car and we are gone. Like when you teach people about run, hide, fight, like all the secret service has ever done is run, you know, like we are getting <laughs> the guards and we are going. Um, and, and I think you saw that work real well when, when John Hinckley shot president Reagan, they threw the president in the car and they took off. And one of the I wanted to ask you about yeah. that break that pretty yeah, So John Hinckley break uh, before you go any further, break that down for me. Wh- like, what was the scenario? I was going to ask you how was that done? Right. I mean, how, yeah. Um, t- t- talk to me about that. It, it, it worked perfectly. In, in the, so prior to that, our, our protocol was you always kept the limousine door closed because the thought was you don't want somebody to throw something into the, into the car. 
whether it was mm. a biological agent or a bomb. Um, and then President Ford had two assassination attempts in two weeks. Uh, and on one of the assassination attempts, he was walking out of the hotel toward the cars that the door was closed. And um, Squeaky Frome shot out, shot at him from across the street. And the bullets, you know, hit, hit the side of the St. Francis Hotel. But as the president's momentum was moving him forward and they heard the shots and everybody got down against the car, what they realized was that they had to back the president away from the armor to open the door and get him in. So mm. that's when the protocol changed that somebody always has the door open. And you'll see even when the president's walking in a parade, there's going to be somebody right by the door. Sometimes they'll have the door, you know, just with their hand chalked open a little bit. Um, but if he's like when they say, all right, we're coming out, like somebody has that door wide open so he can just come out and boom, go right in. So when president, uh, the president was walking out of the Washington Hilton and the shots rang out, uh, Jerry Parr, who was the detail leader, just shoved the president's head down, shoved him in the car. Um, you know, three people were hidden in the fire. Um, officer Delahanty, a, a Washington, D.C. police officer, was hit in the back of the neck. Of course, Jim Brady sustained a most serious wound. He was hit in the forehead. And, um, and, and Secret Service legend Tim McCarthy, uh, who I spoke to about this, and he said, you know, I, I heard the shots, but I never saw the gun. He said, so I just turned and tried to make myself a big target. If you ever watch the video, he does. He turns and he kind of does this and he gets wow. shot in the abdomen as he's the president's right behind him as, as Mr. Parr shoving him into the car. So um, that that would have been another hit on the president had Tim not done that incredibly brave thing. Um, now, the the fluke of it all was that. As the president was being pushed in the car, you know, when you open your car door and there's that gap between the frame and the window, mm -hmm. John Hinckley's fifth shot hit the side of the limousine and it flattened out like a dime and it ricocheted into that opening. And as M Mr. Parr was pushing the president in, the president was in that opening when it hit him and, and the president had put his oh. arms out to break his fall and the bullet went, went into right under his uh, left armpit. Oh my um, God, that's I, such a terrible place to be shot. I mean, all the, I mean, getting shot is is terrible. Period. Yeah. But that, like, when guy when guys got shot underneath where their IBA their body armor was, no I mean, armor. that's a yeah. yeah, no armor there. But oh my God, like that is that is crazy. So what we found is, in spite of that lucky ricochet that Hinkley got, um, that that plan works, you know. And and they took so to go back to my previous story, you know, they throw the president in the car and they take off. Well, the president's doctor, the military aide, none of them got to the cars. So the president was essentially isolated from them until they could get there. And especially with the military aide, it's a big deal. Um, so we started to bring those folks out, the docs, the military aides, and they train with us just to learn like, hey, we are going. Like, you can get in a car, you can get on a car, but we're going without you. Like, we're not, and we're certainly not going to open an armored door to say, okay, like that stuff in the movie of like, get in here. Like, that doesn't yeah. exist. And, <laughs> In fact, we really have, at least when I left, we had no plan to recover our wounded, except we always kept an ambulance at the middle, at the back of the motorcade to help with any collateral damage. So as Tim McCarthy got shot that day and he was laying there on the ground and there were other agents who were, who were, you know, still behind who were able to render aid. But, you know, our, our focus is the president and, and getting the president to safety and, and getting them out of the hot zone. It's not... It's really not, you know, recovering our own at that moment. Um, so it's, 
Yes. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you talked about you talked about you know um, how you train and how you frame things. You know, you know it's bad if somebody gets hurt. It's worse if the principal gets hurt. Like this might seem like a tough question, and I certainly don't mean it to come off like that. But was there a failure in in? I mean, uh, despite the heroic actions of the agents that day. It certainly didn't seem like there was a failure because as I always say, like look, the, the enemy gets a vote, no matter how great yeah. your training is, no matter <laughs> how well prepared you are. It's like Mike Tyson, you know, it's like his quote, like everybody has a plan until they get until they get punched in the face. And yeah. so and, and the key is, is how do you react when that punch mm-hmm. comes and the training kicks in? And clearly on the day that the assassination attempt had it was made on Ronald Reagan's life, um, the training worked, but. I don't know. I mean, how do you, how do, I guess my question is how do, how does Secret Service measure success? Do you think that the agents that day felt like they let something slip through the cracks? Well, so four changes, four significant changes were made in Secret Service operations based on that one attempt. And I think maybe there, maybe it's something that, that should have been happening prior. I mean, you know, maybe there was conversations about that, like, oh, we probably should have done this all along. But yeah, you refine your tactics, techniques, and procedures based on the situation. Yeah. You just always have to be – that's what good units do. You evolve. And so it sounds like that's what you're talking about. Right. So the one thing is you will almost never see the president come and go in the open like like President Reagan was that day. Um, hmm. You know, Maybe for brief, short, brief times like when the president goes to St. John's Church across from the White House on the other side of Lafayette Park, you know, you'll quickly see him get out and hop up those, those short steps. Um but if we can't arrive underground, when I, I keep saying we, when, if the Secret Service can't take the president underground to arrive somewhere, uh, they'll build these big tents uh, that we, they could pull the limousine into. Now, they're not ballistic, but what they do is they eliminate line of sight because you never know when the president's in the car, when he's out of the car. Um, so, so that's one thing that changed is, is the president being in the open. The other thing that changed was John Hinckley was able to get close enough to the president to, to shoot him because what he did was – the press gaggle was there behind a rope and stanchion and he just went and mm. stood in there with all the press folks. No one told him he couldn't be there. So now what we do is there's, there's a, an agent always assigned with the press pool. Uh, he makes sure wow. everybody has their, their hard tag, they're vetted. And I'll tell you, the press is very good about policing themselves. I was, um, I was a press agent with president Clinton for a trip to India and overseas the the press pool just it's 80, 90 people. Because foreign press jumps on and, and, and they're very good about like there was a couple times people came up to me and tapped me and they're like, hey, none of us know this guy over here in the red shirt. And we'd be able to be like, OK, you don't belong here. Or we'd find out, you know, he'd be like, oh, crap, my credential. And then we'd know, like we'd go verify who he was and things like that. Um, the other change was I mentioned that um, uh, the you know, when the, when the people were wounded, you know, Officer Delahanty, Mr. Brady and, and Agent McCarthy, um, you know, they had to call ambulances and, you know, ambulances come rolling in, you know, it's after the fact. So now, like I said, we keep that one ambulance with the um, with the uh, motorcade. Well, there's actually a couple. One's dedicated just to the president and then the one at the back will be for any collateral damage that might happen. Um, and then uh, and then the other part is um, and, and this was in play already like the, the, the snipers are there but now like our, our snipers also um are there for uh for in-town movements which wasn't always happening at that point in in 1980 but now we utilize our snipers everywhere to give us that big bubble over the top 
And not that it would have been appropriate for wow. that because of, because of the crowd and everything moving around. Um, yeah, but those are those are some of the changes we made to just like, okay, we've had this event. How do we mitigate this event from ever happening again? I mean, that's, um, that's what great – that's what the best of the best – uh, tactical units do. I mean, you know, and I, I asked the question because I bet you in the wake of that, there were some secret service agents that were kicking themselves just because I know how men and women act in those scenarios. They, if they're in an elite position like that, then you're a true believer of your mission. And I mean, I had, I had guys, Jeff, that, you know, found themselves in, you know, the center of a kill zone of an ambush. And afterwards, I mean, they fought, they fight, they get, themselves and their men out alive and afterwards they're kicking themselves for finding themselves in the situation in the first place and i'm i always found myself saying like this is not your fault you know yeah. the enemy gets a vote like they get a say, our yeah. job yeah our job is to prepare and train and do everything we can to mitigate that punch when the, when the enemy throws a punch but to, to mitigate that and yeah I, I just wondered if the secret service was if you know if you found yourself well, be, you know, be, being competitive, you know, it's a, yeah. it's, it, it sounds silly to, to phrase it as com, a competition, but you are, but yeah. I mean, the stakes are life and death, but you are competing. Well, well, one of the men I talked to who was working that day and, and I was, so when I, when I did my first master's degree, my culminating project was about how the law changed after that, because John Hinckley was found not guilty by reason of insanity. So they changed the insanity defense <sighs> and that's, that's a long story, but so I talked to all the men and women who were involved that day, and uh, one of them was Bob Wonko, who, who sadly just passed away last week. But he's the guy you might see in the pictures. He's holding up the Uzi, and he's, he's directing people. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and when I talked to him, one of the things he said was he was PO'd at himself that he didn't get to the cars. But he said, once I realized I wasn't going to get there, I got the submachine gun out, and now my my assignment is we didn't know if John Hinckley acted alone. It's during the cold war. There might be a team of Russian commandos coming down the street. I'm going to protect my fellow agents. You know, I'm ready to go. That's my new mission. Um, <laughs> but he said he was, he, and this was, you know, decades later. And he's like, I'm still so ticked off of myself that I didn't get to the cars. Um, but uh, yeah, so there's wow. that, you know, there's that, uh, that competition when you get it right, you know, and, and, uh, and, and I'll tell you, the one thing I, I still appreciate so much now is the, uh, the, that training piece that the Secret Service put in me, that, that never stopping. Even, even the mental reps, you know, uh, read an article not too long ago that said, by the time you're 35, 90% of your day is habit and routine. And you think about it, it's really true. Like, your coffee's <laughs> yeah. the same every morning, you know, you eat at the same time every day. And, um, but, a corresponding article to that I read is about this reflexive and reflective mind that you have that, you know, your reflective mind can slow you down in those moments of tension where you get the tunnel vision and you don't react, even though your reflexive mind is, is kicking in. Well, you can, you know, even through reps of just like I put out to my men and women here all the time about, you know, we, we see officers getting attacked in their cruisers, you know, take some time. Before you go on shift, empty your handgun so you're doing it safely and sit in your car and just make sure you can draw while you're sitting in the cruiser. Like, make sure you can protect yourself. Practice that. Dry fire. Like, if you can't get to the range, dry fire. Because all these things we do, these mental reps, you can speed up that OODA loop. 
you know, the OODA, the um, observe, orient, decide, act, that loop when you're in those moments of tension, you can speed that up just through mental reps. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that the, uh, the Secret Service put that in me. I, I, I got some great training from some great trainers. And, um, and that stuff, you know, I really want to pass on to my men and women here about, you know, just if you can't do it, think about it, you know, and, and practice it in your head and do the mental reps too. So, um, so I'm glad I was, I'm glad I was given that gift. So, yeah, well, I mean, it is an incredible, it is an incredible gift and your, your, your officers that serve with you or they're lucky to have that knowledge and you, yeah. you there to pass it along to them, you know, um, cause it could save lives. I mean, ultimately I, I hate to say it, but it, it's it, complacency does kill. If you find your like routine, especially in a tactical scenario where an enemy is watching what you do and your patterns and, you know, hey, if you're walking in and out of your house at the same time every day, you know, you know, back here at home is not a big deal. But if you're the president of the United States and people want to do you harm or you're in combat where an enemy wants to kill you like that, that's not a good thing, you know, so getting complacent like that and just allowing yourself to fall into those patterns can get can get people hurt and killed. Yeah. I tell them all the time too. you know, take training personally. You know, there's that person there that, you know, all the statistics tell us that police, police shootings take, take place within about five feet, right? You're never really, a lot of times, never more than a few yards away from your enemy. But I tell them, you know, that person wants to kill you, whether they're three yards away or whether they're a hundred feet away. Like, are you going to be able to neutralize that threat? Like, you know, think again, it's, it's thing about practicing. And then I'm sure, you know, I, I read your book, you know, you guys were being watched all the time on your, on your maneuvers and you knew, mm-hmm. you knew it was just going to be a matter of time till you got attacked and you, you put in your head every day, this is the day it's going to happen. So you're ready for it. And, and you're, you're here to tell the story because of that. So, you know, I, the, I, t- I, it's why everything you say resonates with me personally, even though our, our jobs and our missions were so, so very different, but uh, I mean, you're clearly doing it the right way in the secret service. And I, so I, I want to ask you about a couple of things that maybe didn't go the way of the secret service, but ask you about a scenario, uh, JFK. I mean, millions of pe- millions of theories on what happened there, but give me, give me a sense, your sense of someone who's protected presidents, what happened with the JFK assassination well, and, and well, just your opinion. Yeah. So the, the first thing that happened, and, and again, blessed and fortunate to be in a position to have met and, and had a couple conversations with Clint Hill, who was the guy who jumped on the back of the limousine and pushed, pushed Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Uh, Kennedy back in the car. Um, he was actually assigned to, to protect her. Um, and, and in talking to him, one, one of the things he told me that stuck with me was, you know, they didn't, everybody knows the earpieces, right? We have the earpieces and the radio yeah. talk to each other. He said they didn't even have that. He said they would be walking along the limousine, you know, beside the limousine as the president was going and they would use code. They'd knock on the side of the limousine to signal each other um, or they would just have to like yell to each other. So they were so far behind the eight ball technologically. Um, the counter sniper program hadn't been developed yet. Because um, Secret Service snipers were the only snipers in the United States. I don't, I don't know about international teams, but they're the only law enforcement snipers in the United States that don't need a green light authorization from a supervisor to use deadly force. If they see a threat, they can neutralize a threat. So that day in Dallas, as soon as that barrel would have come out the window of the school book depository, 
If that happened today, it would be neutralized. Um, but that wasn't an asset wow. in place yet. And then, of course, the president riding in an open car. Um, again, something that, you know, you, you really didn't see much after that. You'd see some of them, you know, you have pictures of them outside of the sunroof, you know, waving in parades and stuff. But um, so those three things put the Secret Service so far behind the eight ball. And that regardless of what conspiracy you think, if you think it was Lee Harvey Oswald and acted alone, or if you think it was a CIA team or the mafia, it was, it was ripe for success by the bad guys. Because at that point, the Secret Service, all they really had to mitigate that threat was getting between that bullet and the president. There really wasn't much how else. How do you, how, I mean, how, I mean, talk about, I, I, uh, maybe this is the wrong way to say it. So if it is, for, forgive me. If but yeah. but, I mean, talk about being set up for failure. Yeah, I mean, you're so you're in a parade, you're in a city. There's a million windows all around you. Yeah. There's people lying in the streets. You're a slow this, moving this target. Is, yeah, it's slow yeah. moving. A, a slow moving target. Yeah. You you have a difficult. You don't have comms. You're 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 knocking on cars to communicate with each other. It, it's chaos. It's chaos. So how do how, even if you're knocking, how do you really know? I mean, how do you even how do you know? How do you hear? Um, I just feel like how do you how does the Secret Service? How do you even protect something like that to begin with? You know, even today, even today, if 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 the president's gonna, you know, when you see presidents go and visit Iraq and Afghanistan, yes, they fly out in Air Force One in the middle of the night. No one knows they're going there, but you know, there are a million local nationals working on these forward operating bases that all of them could be a threat at any given time. How do you secure any of that? I mean, it's just the whole, it just seems like a, a Herculean task. Yeah, it can be, but that's why we, one of the things we do with our advanced teams is, you know, you're really only in charge of this much during an advance. So if, if the president was coming to, um, I don't know, pick a place in Pittsburgh, the Hilton downtown Pittsburgh mm-hmm, to give a mm-hmm. speech. Like I would be in charge of securing the Hilton and that's all I would do. I would tell you how many post standards I needed. I, I'd say, all right, this is where we're coming in. This is, uh, you know, the route he's going to walk. This is how many people I need to secure it. Then someone else is in charge of the motorcade to get him there. And someone else is in charge. Like then we have our, our guys who, um, our uniform officers who run the metal detectors, they'll come out and decide how many metal detectors we need. Then we have our sniper team. Then we have our counter assault team who's like our SWAT team that travels with them. So the reason I'm saying that is you only are in charge of this much because it would really get away mm. from you if you try to do more. And that's when mistakes are going to be made. Um, you know, you do have a lead agent who's in charge of everything. They're like the, um, they liaise with the staff about how it's going to look and, and, you know, the fine, finer tune things. Uh, like some big picture stuff, but also some smaller stuff. Um, and it, and it really is just the idea of we tried to make everywhere the president went as safe as the white house was, um, knowing that we were most vulnerable during the motorcades. Um, in fact, when we got hold in the early, right after the war started, we got hold of one of the Al Qaeda training manuals. It actually said in there that, one of the stupid things Americans did was put the president in a car and drive him from place to place. And they used the Arabic word for safe. They said they take him out of the safe, out of the White House, and they put him in a car and drive him around, <laughs> you know, where it's, where it's I mean, 
he he's the people's president, right? He has to get out. He has to he has to do that. Um, but we knew we were most vulnerable in, in the motorcades, so we you know the cars are heavily armored. We were moving fast. Um, you know we we had a lot of assets in the motorcade. They're actually you know I sound like a jerk saying this, but they're classified that we could utilize if we had to. Um, but then when we got to that next stop. We had the confidence in the advance team that it was it was as secure as as the White House was. We were taking the president in the safest place possible. Um, I, I think it's I think it's so fascinating, Jeff. You talk about you know again speaking as someone in a military unit. You, this is what when people say that your life is in the hands of others and you you trust that person. You put you you actively place your life sometimes in the hands of your brother or sister who's out there with you on the line. But it's no different when you're you know mobilizing a president you're in a convoy 100 miles an hour down the freeway you're in a vulnerable position but you know that when you arrive on site that the advon guys the the guys that were supposed to prep a site for the president coming in do their job and you just trust that it happens it sounds like yeah and and you know that that kind of permeates all through law enforcement you know like the, the men and women i work with you know i you know i trust if, if something happens today and, and I go down, they're, they're going to, they're going to drag me to where I need to go. Right. They're going to, they're going to render aid. They're going to, they're going to help me. Um, you know, they're going to be right behind me if, if, you know, bullets start to fly or I'm going to be right behind them, you know, it's that mutual support. So I, I think that permeates all law enforcement, not that you don't have personalities like, and I, and I tell them, you know, I'm very frank about this. Like I worked with people in the secret service that I wouldn't have dinner with, but I knew that if they were working the six o'clock position on me that I never had to turn around and check. Like I knew they had it. Um, so, you know, sometimes personalities aside where, where the rubber met the road was in those moments of those assignments, it, it was getting done. Hmm. Let me ask you about another scenario, Jeff. Um, it's 2020. It's the summer of love. There's thousands of people outside the white house shaking the fence. They've got some mock, guillotine cutting off the head of the president they're burning fires everywhere uniform secret service officers are getting hurt put me in the shoes of the secret service in the white house what are you thinking i mean because watching that as, as a military guy right i'm thinking how the hell is the secret service going to get a rap on this i mean if, if these people breach this gate and run to the white house there's no way they can stop all of them yeah well i did i did some media when that happened. And, and the one thing I said then that I will repeat now is I would put my back to the white house and I would be there until I ran out of ammunition or until a bullet went through my head. Like that was just <laughs> going to be it. Um, now it goes beyond evacuating the president. Like we could take the president, we can get him out and people would never know, but we were never going to let 1814 happen again where the British came in and burned down the white house, that, that was never going to be an option. Yeah. You know, the, the white house is a symbol of our democracy. It's a, it's a worldwide symbol of our democracy and we're not going to let anybody put a hand on it. Um, so that was, that was how I felt then. And that's, that's how I feel now. Um, then, and I gotta, I gotta believe that everybody else, the uniform guys and gals and the agents that were there that day, and even the people who came in when they weren't supposed to, that they came in because that's how they felt. So go one step further. So a couple of days later, things died down, but there are still a million protesters in and around the Capitol and the White House. 
and President Trump, along with Milley and Secretary of Defense, walks out to walk to St. John. They just, just just try to burn down St. John's historic church. And the president walks out in open air because you just said in this episode, like, we don't it's we don't really like the president doing that. Yeah. But president walks out with an open air to stand at St. St. John's Church. What are you thinking about that? How do you how do you protect against that? Yeah. Um, so at some point. We have to leave the comfort zone, right? We, if if mm-hmm. life would be easy if the president never left the White House. So at some right. point, you know, we have to use our training and we have to say, all right, we trust our snipers. We trust our spotters who are, you know, we, we have agents who are assigned as counter sniper response who, if somebody sees a window open, they react to it as well. Um, you know, we trust our outer perimeter to not let any cars in. So you are, you are leaning a lot on the trust of people. But again, it's that, it's that idea that, you know, I know nobody's going to, nobody's going to, um, break down intentionally, but there is a breakdown. It'll be communicated and, you know, we can move the president if we have to. Um, but in those moments, it's, you know, when you come out of that sterile environment and into a place where he really needs to be protected and those times you really get to use your training. Um, it's, uh, It's a little bit of a thrill, you know, actually to, yeah. you know, to be able to say you, you know, you were there in those moments. And, and I remember one time, uh, I forget what year it was, but President Bush was walking in the parade, uh, St. Patrick's Day parade in Chicago. And that stuff's mostly scripted, right? So the, the president, we tell him you'll get out of a limousine at this point and you'll get back in at this point. And anybody who's in those zones will have been through metal detectors. Uh, well, the president decided he wanted to keep walking, so he went past the zone where people had been through bags. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, some people didn't like it. And, and, you know, you hear the chatter on the radio about, hey, somebody getting back in, somebody getting back in. But, you know, but it is those moments where we get to use our, our training and, and we, you know, we come back to the, the basics of, you know, you get your head on a swivel. You know what you're looking for. You're looking for those furtive movements. You're looking for those things that are out of place looking for somebody trying to get over the barrier all that you know all the stuff you're looking for that you know really being able to to lean on that and, and lean on each other was you know at those times where you're not in that sterile environment it's like i said a little, little bit of a throw you know you get that tension headache but it's still a little bit of a throw, so. <laughs> well so you ever find yourself when a president wants to you know do like walk to the saint john's church or watch walk a little bit longer in the parade in chicago is your first reaction ever like well son of a bitch here we go. Is there, is, or is there ever even the second hesitation? Because I know in the infantry, like there always is. God, yeah. I don't want to do this, but you saddle up and go anyway. Yeah, yeah. You know, you'd always like it to go by the script. I think. Um, but it, so, so it is that that. Uh, but um, you know, the biggest the biggest groans I always had was the short notice stuff. Like, and and it always surrounded like a terrible a terrible event. You know, like a when the tornadoes go through the South or the wildfires and the president or, you know, hurricane Katrina, when the president says, Hey, I got to get down there. And you have like a day and a half to go do your advance. Um, you know, we, those things are, first of all, there's the groan because you know, you're going to see, have to see this terrible, this carnage that happened, you know, homes destroyed and, and, uh, people's lives uprooted. But there's also the, the idea that, um, you know, you're, you're a little bit, less prepared than you would like to be and not that not that we ever intentionally cut corners but you know you're just going to be awake for 30 hours instead of being able to take seven days and have everything squared away 
um, it's, mm-hmm. it's a spread at that point. So those, so, those to me were the biggest, like, Oh <laughs> yeah. I, I, so Pre- president George W. Bush, you worked for him, right? You were on his detail. Correct. Yeah. Good, good guy. What do you think of him? Yeah. And, and, you know, in spite of their politics, I found that he and president Obama were an awful lot alike in a couple of ways. They, they were good to us. Um, they were good to all of law enforcement, actually. Uh, loved their wives, loved their kids. Uh, didn't want to be away from their families very much, neither one of them. Um, and, and yeah, you know, sports fans, you know, they, they, again, the kind of guys that you could watch a college football game with and, uh, you know, and they'd be, they'd be right in it, hooting and hollering with you. Um, so, yeah, they, yeah, but both good guys, in spite of politics, both, I think, in their hearts, good guys. And I think you've seen that now that they're both out of office, that their families have become close. So I mm-hmm. think that's, you know, that's something. But I, I'll tell you the guy who, and I'm going to tell you two stories about him. The guy who I just, I didn't work with a lot, uh, but I just had so much respect for and probably almost seemed like too kind-hearted of a person and too nice of a person to be in politics was the first President Bush. Um, and please oh, don't man. take that as a shot. I admire, I, 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 no, I, I, admire your, him, I admire him a lot. I know you dipped your toe into politics and, uh, <laughs> you know, I admire you a lot in our, my state representative here, Mike Kelly, I think is in, in Pennsylvania is a great guy. Like, so there are, there are, you know, people of, of character in politics, but so the two stories I'll tell about former president Bush was, um, in 2013, he's a former president and one of our agents on his detail, John, uh, John's son, Patrick, uh, they discovered he had leukemia and he was going through treatments and <laughs> this chokes me up a little bit. He lost his hair. So the president shaved his head to, in like a sign of solidarity with Patrick. And if you go online and, and all the guys on the detail shave their head, but if you go online, you'll find pictures of, of Patrick sitting on the president's lap and the, the president's in a wheelchair, and, you know, both, you know, the president's smiling from ear to ear and he had just had his head shaved. And then there's a picture wow. of him with all the detail guys and Patrick on his lap and, and they're all bald. And, you know, how, how many of us are going to do something like that for a child that's not ours? You know, and um, and that was really that was really something. And then uh, and then the other story is um, in 1998, um, Arnold Palmer's wife, Winnie, passed away and um the Palmers live in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, about 40 minutes uh, east of Pittsburgh. So I get a call from my boss. They're like, hey, we just found out that uh, President Bush wants to go to Mrs. Palmer's funeral. Um, get out there and just get what you can. I had a day. And they're like, just get set up what you can get set up. So I go out there and I meet with everybody I have to meet with and we get everything set up. And the president lands in a small jet at Latrobe Airport. And as he walks off the plane, the detail says to me, the detail leader says to me, Hey, the president has a question for you. And he walks up and he says, Hey, Jeff, you know, I, I changed clothes in the plane, but I forgot a belt. Is there like a men's shop around where we can go get a belt? And I said, (laughs) sir, the only thing in Latrobe, I said out on route 30, there's a Kmart. And without, (laughs) and without missing a beat, he goes, well, looks like we're going to Kmart. So we get into the cars. And we go to Kmart and, um, and it was just, you want to talk about surreal moments. So the detail leader said to me, he goes, Hey, just you and I will go in with them. We don't want this to be a big, and, and the footprint that former presidents have is much smaller than a current president. So, 
He goes, but just you and I will go in. I don't want to make a big show of this. So you'd see, you know, we're four or five steps behind him. You'd see him walk by people and people would look at him and they'd kind of go, eh. and then they'd see us with the earpieces and they, and then they'd put it together and they were like, holy crap. So <laughs> he's, he's at the back of the store in the men's department. I don't know if you remember the old Kmart's. They always had the, the belts on that circle rack that you would spin. Mm-hmm. And he's back there and he's looking. He goes, nah, bar wouldn't like that one. Or no, this one's too brown. And he finds one he likes. And, and by then there's 15 people just standing there with their mouths open. Because here's the former president <laughs> of the United States in the Kmart in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. It's so crazy. By the, time we, by the time we get to the uh, cash registers, there's 30 people just literally standing there like you know, looking at him. And, and he, yeah, and, you know, the Palmers were legends there. So everybody knew why he was there. But he was very gracious and said hello to to everybody and and they and he's like you know i gotta get going i gotta get over and then and they all knew why he was there so so they were very gracious too but you know just the the idea of like hey well we're going to kmart let's go get a belt and like never missed a beat uh so it was that's amazing yeah and a, and a true gentleman too uh, to the very end man it's absolutely amazing experiences jeff so um so what are you up to now? Fill us in on what 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 you're doing. Yeah. If um, we can help, how can we help? Well, I'm the uh right now I'm the chief of police at Robert Morris University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um so uh you know, feel free to send your kids here. We'll make sure they're as safe as they can be. We'll we'll send them home uh hopefully a lot smarter, but but as safe as you sent them to us. Um but the other thing I do is on the side I have a, a consulting firm. It's uh Capital Security Consultants. It's spelled C-A-P-I-T-O-L. And we do a few things. Um, one of the big things we do is we do uh, active assailant survival training where we come into houses of worship or corporations, uh, anybody who invites us out, and we, we do this seminar. And it's not the dynamic stuff they used to do where we run, run in and shoot you with airsoft guns. I think everybody found out that <laughs> people got so nervous about that part that they weren't listening to the content. But you know, what it is in our, in our study of this, of these events, you know, when you look at all of them, they're all alike in about 90% of the ways. So, you know, there are best practices to sur- to survive. So, you know, we come out, we share that with folks and hopefully they'll never need it, but it's a, it's a tool they have in their toolbox that whether they're in church or the mall or in a restaurant, you know, help them survive. Um, we're also certified in Pennsylvania to do risk and vulnerability assessments for K to 12 school districts. So, um, so we do that. We also have a component where we teach some self-defense. So um, if anybody would like to check out our website, it's uh, capital C-A-P-I-T-O-L dash security dot com. And, uh, and yeah, you can reach me through there if you if you like any of our services. I mean, I, I can't imagine a better person to, to instruct schools on how to protect themselves, teach people self-defense or, or work with law enforcement or houses of worship or corporations. All of it's necessary. And for those of pe- folks who are listening, watching, it's not paranoia. You're just being prepared and having, having that training in your kit bag could save lives. And, you know, you hear, hear people say all the time, well, if, if we do this and if we just save one life, then it's worth it. Well, if if that's the same benchmark that we're using to measure things, then you should definitely be calling Jeff and capital security consultants, uh, for some help if you need it. And so, Jeff, man, I, I am so grateful for you coming on at two episodes now. Uh, I didn't, you know, I always say to people, yeah, we're going to keep you 45 minutes to an hour. Uh, and then I, we always end up talking a lot longer. <laughs> so um, I'm really grateful for you, man. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. 
Oh, right back at you. The, the pleasure has been mine. You know, I'm, I'm honored to, to call you a friend. Um, you know, the number of texts and and uh, messages I've gotten in the last couple of days since our first episode dropped or, or first day, um, you know, people are like, oh, you really know him? Like, yeah. Like, so, so you have a pretty big so many, date. So much feedback. So yeah. much feedback from that first episode. On yeah. Rumble, which we stream exclusively on now, like we're up over 32,000 views just on, on Rumble alone, which is crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. But you have a uh, you have a pretty big fan base, and uh, I know a lot of people were were excited I got to come on with you. So I, I appreciate you you having me back twice. So, well, I'm truly humbled to even know you and have you on, and we're, I'd love to have you back yeah. more to talk about stuff, Jeff. And yeah, you know, for those of y'all who are who are watching, um, Jeff James is a patriot. Capital Security Consultants is they're, they're all the real deal. They know it. obviously if you watch these two episodes, they know exactly what they're doing. Um, and if you like this content, you like what you hear on, on battleground podcast, please subscribe to our rumble page. Uh, we just opened it up. We need your help. And, you know, like the videos, they call them on rumble rumble, like click the little thumb up. We need that. That's a metric that they use to measure, uh, success in the algorithm, uh, comment on the videos. Now that we're doing live streams, you, Jeff, your episode was the first one we did live. Um, the live a live stream. There's a live co- there's a live comment section where I'll jump on and I'll reply or our producers will reply to. So that that's a cool function of it. Uh, and subscribe to, to to the podcast, Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. Go to officialshawnparnell.com. Um, we sold out of our merchandise so quickly when we launched it, but we're getting new stuff in, and we have lots of other cool T-shirts that we're selling there. So officialshawnparnell.com. Go there. Um, and in the meantime, Jeff, thank you again for 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 joining us man i I really appreciate it pleasure is mine i'm I'm flattered and humbled to be here thank you all right all right take care my friend thanks you too thanks I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening.